Welcome to episode 13 of Literary Disco, the Moby Duck episode. In today's episode, we'll do a bookshelf revisit in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelves to talk about. Then we will discuss Moby Duck by Donovan Hahn, a nonfiction book about a man's quest to uncover the truth about rubber bath toys lost at sea. And finally, we'll do a classics corner with two Ks in which Julia tries to trick us with a fake passage from a classic book. I'm actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hello, guys. Hi. That was such a half-ass hi. I <laughs> bet you're back to the seductive voice. <laughs> oh, you didn't want to answer me because I was doing my sexy hello? Blah, blah, blah. I'm a happy guy. Hello, Julia and Todd. <laughs> and then Julia just chimes in with her deep, abiding sadness. Oh, hi. Uh, yeah, we're here again. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Hey, <laughs> hey just, just working my way through it. Hope you enjoy the show. Back to work. (laughs) Eeyore. All right, so I'll go first. For my bookshelf revisit today, uh, I wanted to talk about uh, an audiobook, actually, which I may have mentioned before. I haven't read a single Game of Thrones book. I've listened to them all. And they are amazing. They are amazing. We're actually reading Pillars of the Earth for a later episode. And so I've been thinking a lot. Yeah, we'll talk about that on another another episode. But because it takes place in this medieval world and there's, you know, obviously some parallels with Game of Thrones, I've been thinking a lot about how great Game of Thrones is. in addition to how great the books are, the reading in the audio version is so good. It's by this actor named Roy Detrice, and he's this older British actor, and he keeps track of all the different voices. You know, those books have hundreds of characters, and he keeps track of all those different voices. He does different accents based on which family they're from, so the Lannisters have, like, a sort of Scottish sound. It's so well done. Yeah, I have to say, like, I am a huge audiobook fan, and I usually listen to audiobooks that I wouldn't normally read, you know, books that, for whatever reason, I'm like, eh, I'll give it a try, and that's how I was with the Game of Thrones book, because people kept recommending it, and I knew the show was coming out, and I was like, uh, do I really want to read this? I'll just, I'll give it a, a try on the audiobook, and then I, you know, lost about three months of my life. <laughs> have you listened to them all, writer? No, so what happened is, so this guy, Roy Detrice, recorded the first uh, four books, and then the fifth book they brought in somebody else to do it, and like the fans oh. were in an uproar. <laughs> wow! So then, well, but you think about it, he had recorded the first ones like ten years ago, so yeah. he, oh, you right. know, and he's also, I think he's like in his eighties, you know, so it was kind of a, yeah. so they had let somebody else take it over, and the fans were in an uproar, so they went back and re-recorded the fifth book with him. Oh, um, oh my and gosh! I, and I have to say, I started to listen to the fifth book with the other, the other voice actor, and what well, they were perfectly fine. I was so used to Roy Detrice, I was like, no, you can't do this. Uh, and I had stopped listening. And then when they came out with the, the Roy Detrice recording, I started listening again. Uh, and he had lost track of, like, some of the voices. He, the, the characters changed a lot. Yeah. Uh, but still, he was so much better than the other guy. Um, but no, I never... I actually didn't finish all the books yet. I'm still... I'm still wading my way through them. They get... You know, I think by the fourth book, it gets a little, like... The fourth book is terrible. Because what he did, Todd, you will think find this hilarious. So he started writing the next book after the third one. And there are so many characters, and, like, what I really like about this book is, like, when they introduce a new character or a new place, the world really expands. You know, they say, like, oh, they'll mention some place, like, oh, Dornish Wine or the Whores from This Town, whatever. And suddenly that place <laughs> will become a major, you know, 
geographical part of the story. So it gets so yeah. huge. So anyway, so he's writing this book and he's like, oh my God, I've written like 1,500 pages. This is way too long. He's like, I know what I'll do. I'll take out all the boring characters. There, there's a... They're separated by a point of view, like chapters. He's like, mm-hmm. I'll take all the boring characters that no one really likes, and I'll just make all their stories into the fourth book, including none <laughs> of the good characters, and make people wait ten years for the stories that they really want. So stupid. So uh, I'm reading. I'm hitting like that time of the year. I'm reading a lot of books right now, and I had a hard time deciding whether to choose something good or something not good. I decided to choose something bad (laughs) Uh, so last week i talked about reading thoreau um on my amazing vacation and also during that vacation i i was in maine so i of course it's like a complete maine ritual is you go into an old bookstore and they have some like huge stephen king bookshelf and every time i'm like yes i'm gonna pay four dollars for a terrible book. And <laughs> so I've read a lot of Stephen King now, and I'm starting to get the deep suspicion that I've read all the good ones. You have. Yeah, there's like three. I've read <laughs> The Shining and The Stand. Yeah. Yeah. I the, read the, It. Yeah. That was really weird. Uh, yeah. It's but, great. Um, I, so I picked up, I read Cujo, and some people will see, I, I put it on my Facebook page. <laughs> It's a terrible book. Absolutely, is it a terrible book? I haven't read it since I was eleven. Hang on, hang on. Let me get through this. All right. So, so first of all, I'm like reading Cujo alone in a pitch black tent. So that in of itself, I'm like, ooh, yeah, scaring the shit out of myself. And it's like, it's really, it's just dumb. It's about a Saint Bernard (laughs) who gets rabies, and occasionally it's from Cujo's point of view, and Cujo's like, I'm hungry. Oh, why am I so thirsty? I'm gonna lick my butt. <laughs> isn't he also supposed to? Isn't he supposed to be like a, a killer though? Like the, he's possessed by the spirit of a killer yeah, or something? They, yeah. There's, there's the insinuation like early on. Insinuation. So I started reading on the vacation, then I kind of put it down, and then uh, I a couple of weeks ago I had I was so ill. I I think I had the flu for a while. I thought I had malaria, uh, <laughs> and I had a terrible <laughs> fever. And I had to take two and a half days off of work, and I read Cujo while I had a fever, which is the craziest, most nightmare-inducing thing you can do, because all that Cujo does, it's not a complex book, (laughs) for about 150 pages, he just circles a car. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I remember, is Cujo walking around a lot. Yeah, uh, and he has rabies, and all he wants to do is kill the people in this car, and he's just, like, around and around and around. What you got to remember is that Stephen King was addicted to cocaine at the time he was writing that book. So when you're on coke, you're like, you know what? i got a great idea. I'm going to have a dog, and it's going to circle a car, and that's going to be too scary as shit. But doesn't he say that he doesn't even remember writing Cujo? That's the one. That's the one he has no recollection of writing. But what's, like, so hilarious about this experience is, like, that is the stuff of nightmares, just a dog doing the same repetitive thing. So it really ended up scaring uh, The whole time, I was like, whatever, stupid. 
<laughs> then, do you talk like that when you're saying whatever, Stu? <laughs> yeah. Do, are you imitating me when you're scared? When she gets into her tent at night, <laughs> she becomes a dude. No biggie. She becomes possessed by Satan. <laughs> Greg, get me another book. <laughs> We're in a tent, so what? I can take it. Fear is nothing. I've been reading a lot of Stephen King and taking hormones. My testosterone's increased. <laughs> Let's go to East Germany and lift things. <laughs> Excuse me while I scratch my balls. Uh, yeah, so uh, Cujo, that's what I read. And I had pretty bad nightmares for a couple of days and a terrible fever. So that is my recommended reading experience. If you want to read Cujo, be as ill as you can. And take reading. NyQuil. A fan on our Facebook page uh, the other day asked us, what we think of video games as storytelling devices, mm. as uh, narrative, which I thought was a fascinating question. And there's a great book about this by um, Tom Bissell, uh, who uh, Julia and Ryder and I um, know as well from uh, our graduate school experience. Um, but at any rate, I was thinking about that and about how people tell stories through video games and, and my experience with that. And it invariably got me thinking back to the addicting video games I played as a kid and how much importance I put on those. And when I say as a kid, what I really mean is when I was in college. (laughs) (laughs) When you were in your frat boy stage. And my frat boy stage, which has now um, lasted well into my 40s. And so then last night I was thinking about this and they had this little special on the NFL network, which is something I watch constantly because um, uh, unlike Julianne Ryder, I'm part of the American society and not a communist and therefore understand American sporting games. Um, So I was thinking about this great game (laughs) called Tecmo Bowl, which was like the first good football game for the Nintendo system and how I and all of my friends would play it together for hours, hours. I mean, we would cut class, get drunk, and play Tecmo Bowl for like three days at a time. And the stories that came from those things, you know, you, you'd you be somewhere and someone would start talking shit to you about, oh, dude, I beat you 79 to 3 in Tecmo Bowl. And that would become like... That was the insult of the day that you were destroyed in this video game. And so I put something up on my Facebook last night about um, how I ran into this guy, uh, this former football player named Christian Okoye, who was a running back for the Kansas City Chiefs. I ran into him on a plane, and I was in the airport first, and I saw him there, and I was like, oh, my God, that's, that's Christian Okoye. And my first thought was, he was awesome on Tech Mobile. I've got to talk to him. <laughs> and... But then I I was like, well, you know, I don't want to bother him because, um, you know, he's just a person flying from Vegas back to L.A., probably covered in the glitter of some prostitute that was dancing on him. Uh, Or maybe that was me. Uh, And um, but then we got our seats on the flight and there was like 15 people on the whole plane. And I happened to be seated next to Christian Okoye. So I could have sat anywhere. But I was like, oh, no. I'm sitting next to this dude. And so I sat down. I tried to. He was probably so annoyed. And I'm like, all right, now I got to talk to him. And so I said to him, oh, my God, you were awesome on Tecmo Bowl. And he said, why does everyone say that to me? And I thought, oh, here, this is this is when it devolves. (laughs) This is when I get thrown out of a plane for, um, you know, screaming at this ginormous man. And so I, I proceeded to tell him why everyone, you know, 
was so in, into talking to him about it and what a you know important part of my life it was at that time. And he just looked at me like I was a fucking crack. <laughs> just like, yeah, it's great, dude. Thanks. <laughs> but so wait, you're 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 tell you're celebrating the fact that his avatar in a video game I, that's was really good at football. That's the thing is that he basically a fictional version of him played a very important part of my life for a little and while. And you felt compelled I, to tell him. And I felt compelled to tell this him. This is the stupidest, most convoluted thing I've ever heard. I know. Well, wait, no, wait, this is interesting. So was his character in this game better than he was in real life? Yeah, because in real life, he got injured a lot. But in Tech Mobile, uh, he didn't get injured. He just ran over people. Wow. Um and so I've been thinking about this all day long now that I've been thinking about Tecmo Bowl and, and how, you know, this tribe of men, boys, that I lived with, you know, when I was in college and living in Fraternity House, man, that was our life. We would wake up and we'd play Tecmo Bowl and RBI Baseball on Nintendo or the Sega or we'd play Blades of Steel and then we'd go to school for an hour and we'd come back and we'd get drunk and we'd do it again. And, like, that is a huge portion of my narrative life is surrounding, as Ryder was just saying, the avatars of these people and not even the real people. And, you know, just the other day, another friend of mine from college was like, hey, remember that time I know hit you in RBI? You were my bitch. And I'm like, yeah. And I was still mad about it. I'm like, I am mad about cartoons that threw a ball right. past me in 1992. Yeah. Well, see, that's funny, so, because, but you're talking about non-narrative games. Right, that we ascribed our own narrative to. But just, like, me alone playing a video game where it's one story that keeps going, I tend to get bored pretty quickly. I, I'm not a huge fan of narrative video games. I do think, though, that video games are a kind of narrative now that, that young people, you know, can become part of the story. And that's that's how I felt playing um role-playing games when i was a kid and of course you know Ryder knows a lot about that since he made a movie about it <laughs> um but i still think that it's a it's a different kind of event than actually reading a book i think it's yeah you know it, it it's it's like exercise without getting your heart beating basically you know you you feel the thrill of things but then you know you're not sweating because of it um, so I, I think there is a role of it. Yeah. Uh, there, there's something that's interesting to me is I remember there was a book that came out. I don't know off the top of my head, but it was a series of essays about the video game. This was in the 90s. This, this book came out. A lot of the essays were about narrative potential of video games. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that mm -hmm. uh, because you're a character within a story, it's more open-ended. You know, you, your character mm -hmm. can die. Mm -hmm. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure way approach right. to story. And they were sort of talking about how this is going to open up stories. It's going to change the way that we think of narrative. And I actually completely disagree. I feel like when I'm playing a video game like L.A. Noir or Grand Theft Auto, mm -hmm. uh, I feel more narrative tension than ever. I feel like the whole purpose of the game is is to actually strengthen the narrative. Like, you as a character know what you're supposed to do, what's right or wrong, or what's going to accomplish the mission. And if you fail at that, you have to try again. So in a way, right. it's like more narratively constricting than any other form, I think. I, I guess I feel like the, the form of a video game actually puts more pressure on the narrative to be really strong and to be predictable yeah. in a way. Yeah, because there's there's defined margins. Yeah. You know, the, it's... It, it is only as expansive as the programmer can make it. Right. Um, and so when you're reading a book, you know, you, you're going to have flights of fancy in your own head. So you might read a sentence that says, you know, and Jim loved the taste of brie cheese. And you might pause for, you know, a minute and wonder about your own relationship to brie cheese. 
But in a video game... Well, that can it, happen in a video game. Yeah, and, but then you get run over by the pimp in Grand Theft Auto, exactly. and they steal your wallet, and you got to start all over again. Yeah, you got to stick... To, you have to hew to the narrative more. It's like, right. that's your job. When you're playing the game, you're trying to fit into the narrative as best as possible. And if you veer from yeah. that, you, you failed. You're actually not rewarded. You're rewarded for adhering to story. So the right. process of playing a video game is actually strengthening the narrative. It's a weird... Hmm. Yeah, because so because the, you have to get from there's you have to get from point A to point B to right. receive the gratification of the next plot point exactly. basically. You have to, there's achievable goals. Todd, when you were talking about it, you're not talking about the narrative of the game. You're no, talking about, I was talking about the outside that's, narrative. That's the thing. It's like mm-hmm. the simple pleasures of gameplay and social interaction, much of which, especially in online gaming, is really really negative i mean i don't know if you guys have ever played with anonymous people greg does mm-hmm. that sometimes but oh my god people are terrible it's like all the disgustingness of the internet anonymity thing with this like you know made up violent situations it's very strange but uh yeah i mean like i find like people playing video games interesting but i have always loved books and movies because i like a narrative to happen to me Mm -hmm. you know like i'm never going to come up with a narrative as good as some of these or you know let's not say good or not good i just would never think of some of these plots or some of these characters and i don't think us having total control over our, the arts we're doing is necessarily always a good thing. I've never liked video games. Even as a kid, I, <clears throat> and I don't have really anything against them. I just like literally don't engage. You know, I, I remember being a kid and I had like a cool friend who had Super Mario Brothers and she would be like, let's play. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't use your demon voice though. Okay, let's play. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> Let's do this shit, Betsy. (laughs) Come on, bro. Get some coins. Donkey Kong, motherfucker. Welcome back to Literary Disco. Um, I'm Julia, and I'm here with Todd and Ryder. Hi, guys. Yo. Hello. All right. So are you guys ready to talk about Moby Duck? I'm finally happy to talk about a book that sounds like Moby Dick that I've actually read. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what we're talking about today is a book that I spontaneously bought in a bookstore based on my extreme adoration for Moby Dick and long works of nonfiction. Um, This is a book called Moby Duck by Donovan Hahn. It is a nonfiction work. So uh, in the early 90s, a Chinese shipping freighter was caught in a storm in the Pacific and a few crates fell off the back, which as we have now learned is something that happens all the time. What was special about this particular spill is that the crates were full of rubber ducks and other rubber animals. So 30,000 rubber ducks, beavers, frogs, and turtles fell into the ocean. Their packaging disintegrated, and they have since floated all over the world and are actually, some of them may be still floating around. 
So this little story uh, caught the attention of the author, whose name is Donovan Hahn. So he went on several journeys to find out about these ducks and the Chinese manufacturers of them and humankind's impact on the environment and all that good stuff. All that good stuff. (laughs) The degradation of the entire world and all that good stuff. Yeah, it's not an uplifting book. (laughs) Not in any way. It has a rubber ducky on the cover, so you're a little like, oh, this will be a fun little adventure. Uh, It actually sort of makes you feel pretty terrible. (laughs) It's incredibly depressing. Yes. It's got a lot of, you know, dense facts and materials in it but it also has a personal storyline as well yeah and it's pretty lightly written i think you know a book like this could be um pretty boring to read because it it does sort of delve into ocean currents and things like that but the writer you know he's funny and he's interesting and he's a rube you know he doesn't know any of this stuff and so as he learns about these different things we learn about it too and what could be some pretty dry stuff it ends up being fairly entertaining. Yeah. The the thing that I think is that I battled with while reading this book is that I kept thinking, God, this would be a great five to seven thousand word piece in the New Yorker. Yes, as a as a book, it's four hundred. It's about four hundred pages long, and after a while, you you begin to get it. Yeah. And here's mm-hmm. what you get: um, the human race is killing the planet. So <laughs> that's, that's the takeaway. Plastics are not the greatest <laughs> thing in the world. Turns out um, plastic in general, uh, the reason it's so great is that it doesn't break down ever. And it's now swirling in the Pacific Ocean and it's quietly killing. There's us. a there's a film I want to uh, suggest to you guys and to our listeners uh, that sort of accompanies this book. It's a short film you can find online. It's called Plastic Bag. And I think it was done as some kind of project, but you can find it on YouTube, and it's amazing. It's uh, the the story of a plastic bag, and it follows just this one bag as it you know is used uh, after a woman buys something at a store, and the whole bag mm. the bag is narrating, and it's Werner Herzog, <laughs> and he's like, "I loved God. my owner." My owner took care of me. <laughs> and then the owner, you know, gets rid of the plastic bag, and then we just follow. Werner Herzog as this lonely plastic bag as it goes from the dump and then gets stuck on a truck and ends up traveling the world oh and ends God. up in the garbage patch, you know, in the middle of the mm-hmm. ocean as part of a whole swirl of plastic bags. It's I kept thinking about it while reading Moby Duck because it's you know it's it's a great visual way you know and it's it's pretty funny that Werner Herzog is narrating, but it actually ends up being a potent little short film where you kind of get caught up in this bag's journey. Uh, but it has a lot of the same themes about plastic and the way that we, you know, treat the environment and the way that our lifestyle is is not really sustainable. The the thing that I found really compelling though about the about the book is this ecosystem of people who um, walk around beaches looking for stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, yep. picking up. It's. I mean, essentially, it's picking up garbage, but. Uh, the author goes up to Alaska and he meets um, these various characters, basically, who, you know, they're, what they do for fun in some cases is they go drifting and picking up stuff. And a lot of them had found these ducks. There's, you know, a couple people had found a hundred of these ducks or beavers or what have you. Um, but then there's like a father and son that he runs into. And that's just what they do. Like during hunting season, they hunt. And when it's not hunting season, they go along the coasts of these, you know, small islands in Alaska, picking up weird pieces of garbage that have 
floated into these shores. And, you know, it, it comes from all over the world. And when you start to think about the effect of, you know, throwing one thing away and where it might end up, it's pretty, it, 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 you know, the, the idea that the world is small becomes even grander when you realize the distance for which things travel to land somewhere. Yeah, and the politics of... Uh a lot of the stuff discussed in the early part of the book is the politics of different environmental groups and, and different individuals and who are all in a way, you know, environmental lovers and passionate about Alaska. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of conflict over, you know, are beach cleanups actually the answer just really damaging because are are they good or obviously they seem on the surface, very touchy feeling, very good, but also they're very negative in that they're highly publicized. And then people see this beautiful wilderness and then want to go to it. So that creates its own environmental impact. That is so major. They also say that beach cleanups, you know, that's not the big problem. Plastic on the beach. Isn't the big problem. It's the tiny, tiny bits of plastic in the water in the middle right. of the ocean that is the truly horrifying yeah that the the parts of plastic per gallon or whatever yeah. versus the parts of plankton for that same amount of water is and huge. also he talks about the fact that um beach cleanups are sort of a publicity stunt for the companies that create plastics you know that, that right. a mm-hmm. lot of the companies the beverage companies or whatever they're using a lot of these plastics they will give money to beach cleanups because beach cleanups are great photo ops like look how much our money is going towards this beach cleanup but actually addressing the problem they're creating the plastic that they're cleaning up from that beach. And, you know, if none of their charity funds are going towards that, it's considered a misappropriation of funds. And, and of course, the irony also is that they're doing these huge beach cleanups and they're throwing all this stuff into giant plastic bags. It's hard. I mean, that's it's tough because how do you argue the usefulness of plastic? Like, it's it's so useful and it's an amazing material. Um, but, yeah, by the end of the book, you're definitely on the fence about... We must intervene. Like, this is one of those books that... I tweeted from our account that I wish I had written this book. This is the book I was referring to because I just want to go. I want to have an experience like this of, you know, you take this one tiny object in American culture, the rubber duck, which we should get back to, and see how what we've created, this myth that we've created around ducks and toys and plastics, has this worldwide impact that we need Mm -hmm. to deal with. And I think he did a, a great job with balancing we're obviously going to talk about the plastic stuff so much because it's so horrifying but there's also a really literary quality to the other themes that he explores yeah i mean he he's also the part that i think also appeals to me is that he's a guy who needed some sort of change in his life you know he was teaching school Mm -hmm. and was writing feature stories basically and he basically became obsessed about this one thing and it it took over his life to the point that you know, his wife had just given birth, and he basically leaves her right when she's given birth to go on this journey. He breaks his back, and uh, the doctors say, you can't do any heavy lifting. And, like, the next day, he's on a <laughs> ship. Yeah. <laughs> he's on a ship bound for the Bering Sea. Um, so, you know, there's, there's the human side of it, too, with him needing that same journey. And, and that's sort of an awe-inspiring thing that this guy's done, that he has ventured into our last landscape that isn't space basically to find both himself and find a rubber ducky um 
Yeah, it has a Thoreau-like quality to it at times that I really loved, especially towards the beginning. So, um, this is right at the beginning. Let's draw a bath. Let's set a rubber duck afloat. Look at it wobbling there. What misanthrope, what damp, drizzly November of a sourpuss upon beholding a rubber duck afloat does not feel a Crayola ray of sunshine brightening his gloomy heart. Now, that's actually an adjustment of something from the first page of Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. So there's a line. Yeah, Todd. Yeah. Mm, yeah, you mm-hmm, yeah, know so I powerful. Would. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of echoing, I think, of a lot of classic work that I may have missed because I haven't read it. But there's a lot of, of that quality woven in very subtly, I think. Uh, you know, I mean, I not to be the voice of criticism. No, always, never. But... <clears throat> I, I didn't think this book was very well written, the actual language itself. I didn't think the integration of the storyline that you guys are describing of this personal quest, I didn't think that was integrated very well. I think that I, I, I think if I put down the book and think about the, the, the story and I listen to the, what you guys are saying, it all sounds perfect. Like, I guess mm-hmm. in my mind, it's a better book. But when I'm actually reading it, uh, he, it... it it felt like he w- was taking on something very ambitious yeah. and then not committing to the ambitiousness of it. Um, the books that I was reminded of the most were Arctic Dreams by Barry Lopez and Prairie Earth by William Least Heat Moon. But the thing about Prairie Earth, it's a great book, and but what it is is, you know, it's William Least Heat Moon looked at the map of the United States and said, I'm going to pick the most empty spot I can. And he decides I'm just going to go there and write a book about this empty space. And he it is very ambitious and weird to begin mm-hmm. with. And he commits to it for 700 pages or something. And he's just writing about how can I write about this space that I found on the map. And the same with Arctic Dreams. Like Barry Lopez said, I'm going to tackle the entire mm-hmm. Arctic. The legends, the local people, the history, the uh, geography. It's insane, the, like the amount of ambition. I, th- I think the thing uh, about this that's different than the books you're talking about, Ryder, that I haven't read uh, <laughs> is also that, you know, you get the sense that he's writing the book as he's going along these journeys because he's interviewing these people and things like that. So he doesn't necessarily know the end while he's writing the book because th- this isn't going to be a big spoiler. The quest for him partially is to, for him to find a rubber ducky. That's, that's his journey is that he's constantly looking for that duck. And because it's sort of an artificial ending that we're hoping for, oh, I hope he gets that duck, um, it, it's, it's sort of a false sense of drama. But that false sense of drama is exact. it's false, you know, and it feels false. And, and in a way, I wish he had laid out a little clearer that he was doing something really ambitious and just embraced mm-hmm. it and said, like, I'm not just going to get a rubber ducky. I'm going to explore environmental issues in plastic and toys and been a little clearer about, like, that up front. Instead, he's constantly doing these asides, like, and then I was all shucks, caught up on another boat, going somewhere else where I didn't know what was going to happen. And it's like, you know exactly what's going to happen. You're smarter than that. You were looking for something. Like, don't pretend that you're that you're not trying to say something big about the world right now. And it's just, it's a, it's a defense mechanism to me. It's like, say something big, because you're smart enough and you can do it. I think he seems to be overwhelmed by the scope of what he is writing and the level of detail is overwhelming to him as well as to us. You know what I mean? Like, I I think that he probably could have adjusted some of these paragraphs or chapters to be less 
less about exact ocean currents and less about every detail of plastic and more artful in the conclusions and comparisons he's drawing. That's, I mean, that's just how I took it. But I, I think the themes are so far reaching that I don't care if I walk away with only 10% of what he wrote about because that 10% to me is very important and very compelling. I mean, I imagine if David Foster Wallace wrote this book, he would go for it. Like, he would be writing about ducky history yeah. and it would be going <laughs> in pages and you would love the fact that he was yeah. geeking out on it. And this guy's, like, afraid to embrace that he's geeking out on this weird little incident. Like, embrace <laughs> it. Like, don't apologize for it. I don't know. That's... Yeah, I, I, I know what you're saying. One of One part that I liked... Um, that I wish had been longer was about Sesame Street. And Mm -hmm. uh, so before the Rubber Ducky song with Ernie, Rubber Duckies were not the huge cultural symbol that they are now. That's basically the origin of it. And he talks about how how sudden and strong the reaction was in the first episode of Sesame Street. There's a version of the Rubber Ducky song. And that song and that incident incident as if it was some major <laughs> crime that was coming <laughs> That combined with Watergate. Um, yeah. uh, Sesame Street had been, you know, more human heavy, uh, mm-hmm. but the Rubber Ducky song, because children reacted so passionately towards it, is one of the things that flipped Sesame Street around to be more about puppets and therefore more about artificial things and children mm-hmm. connecting with things that were plastic mm-hmm. and felt and clean in that way. Um, so that was really interesting. Those are the kind of themes that I really engage with. Like to read entirely right. about how horribly and irrevocably we've fucked up the oceans is really depressing because I, I feel that there's, yeah. you know, my sister who works for Greenpeace is going to kill me. But, uh, you know, it almost feels like there's nothing we can do, that there's a pointlessness mm-hmm. to it. But to connect it to a larger American story, a larger American myth, is why, I mean, that's why I read these huge nonfiction books, is to see, to put this lens on the world that I never saw before. Which is why I like when he goes to China and he's going into the plastic factories yes. and they make the toys, <laughs> and he goes to the toy convention and he starts discussing the culture mm-hmm. of toys. I yeah. loved that because it's a weird, like, you're, you, that's when I feel like he's reaching the thematic points that he really wants yeah. to get to, which are, yeah, like questions of culturally where, you know, how, it's not just how are we going to fix this plastic problem, it's how are we going to fix the culture of plastic that we already yeah. have, you know, the, the, where these, the demand for these plastics come from, yeah, us wanting to have toys and rubber ducks, and why do kids need toys, like, as many toys yeah. as they need what's now? childhood? Uh, you know, it's a really weird thought. <laughs> Um, but the, the thing about the, the giant swirling garbage patch. Yes. We haven't talked about that yet. So there, uh, those of you who don't know, and I don't know how that's possible because it's one of the creepiest things on earth. There is in the Pacific ocean, I guess in other parts of the world too, basically a vortex of garbage swirling around. Um, and it's the size of Texas or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it basically collects all the world's garbage that we throw into the into water because or it gets of into the water currents and wind right. and whatever and the weight of all this stuff but there's you know these guys that say you know you look out and you're in the pristine middle of the Pacific Ocean and you see a bunch of Clorox bottles or 
plastic bags, refrigerators, or, refrigerators <laughs> or boots, or shoes, or whatever it is, and it's just sitting there in the middle of literal absolute nowhere in this Texas-sized vortex of shit. And it was at that moment, as I um, sat in my conspicuous consumer home and read this on my computer reading device, that I thought, well, I might as well just blow my fucking head off. <laughs> We're destroying this planet. It's all of our fault. Yeah. This thing didn't exist a hundred years ago. It's very overwhelming to think of these problems because when you think of the whole as an ozone as like a small, closable hole as I thought of it in the 80s when I was 10, you know, that's something that seems like you can combat. But when you think about what we've done to the water, I mean, the water temperature is getting slightly warmer, has bleached, coral bleaching is a horrible problem. Just we've so irrevocably changed what is in this vast landscape of water that it is very difficult to think about, you know, in a a way that I don't know if it was the 80s or because I was a child seemed much more possible to fix back back then. then, you know? Yeah. Well, it's also not right in front of you. I mean, you can understand the ozone when you have a sunburn, um, but it's hard to understand a swirling mass of shit in the middle of the ocean the size of Texas when you're sitting in your house. Um, mm-hmm. Conspicuously consuming. I mean, I think we are probably the three most liberal podcasters in America today, and yet we are also um, just looking at our various homes in the background of our Google Hangout where we film it. I'm seeing a lot of waste from all of you. I mean, I mean, this is. I think this is an interesting time in our history. Like the fact that hoarders is such a huge hit. Yeah. Um, or that it became such a huge hit a couple years ago. It's it's insane that that is a show, that there are enough yeah. <laughs> people, that it's not one to five people. Yeah. It's a uniquely American mm-hmm. early 21st century problem. Like, I feel like we're dealing with this now. What do we do with our garbage? What do we do with our stuff? Like, why do we have to have so much stuff? Why do I feel so much better when I buy something new and then it kind of fades away as it gets older? Like, that whole, like, we, we have this weird addiction to... The, you know, our objects that, um, and the, 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 the sort of glow that comes with buying something. I just, I don't know. I hate it. I mean, I have to fight that tendency. I definitely try. I mean, I don't completely because I like new clothes and new stuff as much as the next person. But I don't know. It's a weird. In a hundred I mean, years, the aliens are going to watch hoarders and <laughs> they're going to. And Tom Cruise will be there to narrate. They're going to point to it. Hoarders <laughs> is what you point to of a symptom I really enjoyed this book. I'm really happy we read it. I, I, I really, I think that there's so many great things about this book. I, I think Todd nailed it on the head when he said it could have been an amazing 5,000-word uh, essay that's sort of covered. Even the opening chapter kind of covers mm-hmm. a lot of what he ends up talking about. Um, but uh, overall... I mean, I definitely will recommend it because I, I do think it's important. Like, what he's talking yeah, about is and, incredibly important. And it's accessible and it's entertaining and it will scare the shit out of you a little bit. Um, and, you know, the, at no point when I was reading it was I thinking, oh, this is terribly boring or anything. I just kept no. thinking, oh, you could probably leave this part out a little bit. You know, yeah. things like that. Um, but I think I, I love these people that are able, though, to go off on these journeys and say, yeah. I'm obsessed about bananas or I'm obsessed about the history of salt or I'm obsessed (laughs) about this duck that has traveled around the world and so I find that really admirable that that he did it and that his wife let him 
Uh, <laughs> um, so I, I think, you know, Moby Duck is, uh, for, for people who are interested in the environment, who are interested in um, the way the world works, literally, um, it's a good, entertaining read. And also, if, like me, you're a big Moby Dick fan, just, um, just so powerful. So you know, powerful. just... Uh, just so many parallels. A lot of parallel. A lot of a lot of times, I just sat down and just was like, "Wow, it's almost too close for me to to handle that emotion again." Yeah, <laughs> true. Never read Moby Dick. Not once. <laughs> On that note, bye. See you guys later. Don't buy anything for the rest of the day. <laughs>
Yet those who approached Dorothea, though prejudiced against her by this alarming heresy, found that, or sorry, hearsay, found that she had a charm unaccountably reconcilable with it. Most men thought her bewitching when she was on horseback. She loved the fresh air and the various aspects of the country, and when her eyes and cheeks glowed with mingled pleasure, she looked very little like a devotee. Riding was an indulgence which she allowed herself in spite of conscientious qualms. She felt that she enjoyed it in a pagan, sensuous way, and always looked forward to renouncing it. Ha ha ha. At number three. And by a sad contradiction, Dorothea's ideas and resolves seemed like melting ice floating and lost in the warm flood of which they had been but another form. She was humiliated to find herself a mere victim of feeling, as if she could know nothing except through that medium. All her strength was scattered in fits of agitation, of struggle, of despondency, and then again in visions of more complete renunciation, transforming all hard conditions into duty. Poor Dorothea. Damn you. She was, <laughs> she was certainly troublesome to herself chiefly, but this morning, for the first time, she had trouble, been troublesome to Mr. Kosovan. Wow. Okay. There's wow. a poor Dorothea exclamation point at every single one of these. Yes. You got it. Oh. That, that makes it a challenge. This um, is hard, man. Wow. Well, good job, because they I am all, honored that this is hard. Yeah, the, the voice is pretty consistent, so... Oh, man. Hmm. My, my first sense is that number two is written by Julia Pistel. And it comes because of two things. The word pagan, for some reason, feels... <laughs> Are you saying I'm a pagan? <laughs> no, it feels like a word that would not be in this book that I have not read. And I don't know why. Um, and also that you would try to deceive us with uh, a term like a sort of blazonry. That seems like a deceptive form of wordage there. Just like writer's palimpsest? Exactly. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> Blazonry is a really weird word. And, and by the way, palimpsest, now that I know that word, I see it and hear it All everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great word. I've not yet used it. I, I just see it a lot. So I, I think number two. Uh, I would actually say it's anything but number two. Uh, and I'm not sure why. I guess number two just, I don't, it's, it's. It's really weird. Number two is a weird one. Uh, and I, well, you're right, though. Bewitching on horseback. The idea of, like... But see, I haven't read the book, so I don't know. Like, is it this... Like, is there... Does she have pagan, sensuous horseback rides? Like, is that part of the <laughs> Who doesn't, Ryder? When you get I mean, right it, down to I it. I mean, it sounds very, like, 19th century. I always thought of her more Wicca than pagan, but... All right. The thing about Middlemarch is that it's seems like another 19th century you know social novel but it really isn't it's about a woman thinking she knows what she wants with her life and then having a lot of internal discoveries so the trick to enjoying Middlemarch I think is the same as the trick to winning this game which is you have to see past the 19th century-ness of the writing Mm -hmm. and you know read it does that make sense Mm mm-hmm not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it 
does. Come on. I can't even get past the poor Dorothea's. I yeah, thought, when I realized that the two that I had picked both had that, I uh-huh. had to put it in my own. Right. Uh, I'm going to say number three. I'm going to say number three, and it's, it's either number one or number three for me, and I'm just going to go with number three because it's it's the shorter. hardest for me. It's shorter, <laughs> which makes sense, but it also it's the most abstract. It only becomes concrete at the end, and uh, I just think that abstract is safer when you're dealing with you know, writing a, a a fake quote for a big book, so I would say that um, that there's more more chance the third one was written by Julia than than the other two. Mm. So I'm gonna go with number three. Right. Okay, you guys ready to know? Yeah. Who yes. Wins. Yes. I win, motherfuckers. You win Middlemarch. <laughs> <laughs> so number one. Wow. Yes. Number yes. one. I've never been more proud. <laughs> Because. You've been middle-marched motherfuckers, I believe. What's the quote? <laughs> middle-marched motherfuckers. I just want to thank uh, Susan Cheever for making me read this book and George Eliot for writing it. And I also want to state that I spent more time working on this paragraph than I have on a piece of my own writing in quite some time. It was really <laughs> difficult. Uh, but deftest yes. of men was great. Deftest of men, totally. That yeah. was when I when I, I was like, "There's no way she would have written deftest of men." That just seemed like such a weird phrase. And then nice use of aquiline. Aquiline. That, I, that was a word I plucked out from yeah. another part. That's totally a thing that they would say. Aquiline mm. features. But my paragraph really isn't about much. It's just about vague disappointment. But the other ones are just. Oh, those pagan horseback rides. The the reason that Middlemarch is so great is right there in that paragraph. It's like, oh, she thinks she's so religious and perfect, but she rode horses and looked forward to renouncing horseback riding. Right. That's how perfect of a woman she was. That's from, like, the second page or something very early on. Julie, you have a great line here, the one that the writer pointed out here. This is this is a moment of, of you should steal this for yourself. She could not tell him that it did not sustain her. Or that working for the deftest of men had hardened, like everything else about her life, into disappointment. That's a great line. Yeah. That's the theme of the book. Also, I write Middlemarch fan fiction in my free time, That's it for this week's episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we do a mixtape episode and talk about a short story, a poem, and an essay. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco, and follow us on Twitter at literary disco. Thanks for listening.